Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to Scraps. This is your podcast where we, on your behalf, seek to understand the journey of the people in science. Unlike other science and technology podcasts, we care less about the nitty-gritties of science. We believe that this is best left to the conferences and publications. But we want to go where no one else ever has and present to you the stories that you normally don't get to hear and appreciate but are always itching to do so. So see Scraps as the way to soothe that incurable itch in your brain. It's Scraps, it's Spark spelled backwards, and it's Scraps with a K. We are also on social media, on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. So make sure that you share your feedback on the episodes and all the information that you hear with your friends, with your colleagues, and also if you have any other good ones or bad feedback, please let us know. Over the last few weeks, we hope that you enjoyed the diversity and inclusion interviews. Our first one was with Anila Chitta, Investment Director at TDK Ventures. And last week, it was with Juan Pablo Mas, partner at the Action Potential Venture Capital, a bioelectronic medicines-focused venture fund. Today, we are swinging back to academia to talk to one of our friends. And here's Jojo to introduce our guest. I first met our next guest during a site visit to the University of Pittsburgh in 2016. Some colleagues and I were on a mission to identify and engage with the next generation of leading neurotech researchers, and TK Kozai certainly had all the ingredients to fit that description. While I was busy celebrating my first visit to the home of the Pittsburgh Steelers, my lifelong NFL team, TK was eagerly setting up his lab and taking delivery of his deluxe model two-photon microscope. We clearly had different personal priorities, but that visit cemented in my mind an impression of TK that has not since changed. He is imaginative. He is not afraid to speak his mind. He is passionate about his research and his students and has the most infectious laugh that I still use as a course corrector when I'm having a bad day. With that, I'd like to welcome Professor TK Kozai as our guest on Scraps. And Dr. T.K. Koza, if I could ask you to introduce yourself and your affiliation for us. Yeah, I'm T.K., University of Pittsburgh, uh, Koza. Um, I do bioengineering, neural engineering, especially at the brain-computer interface, neural interface, uh, mostly in the cortex. Um, yeah. <laughs> And we've, we've talked a little bit in the past about uh, your journey to get to where you are today. And I'm one of the things that stands out, we ask a lot of our guests this, is how did you get there? Because in my recollection, science wasn't your favorite subject as a young high school student. Yeah, um, you know, science in, in elementary school is mostly memorization. And biology is you know, naming body parts and learning the Latin names, which to me was just not fun at all. And in my, so I, I didn't get into the honors, you know, I got into just the standard class uh, for science my freshman year, and I just annoyed the heck out of the teacher. And I, I would find ways to win back points. I would just argue and complain that the question wasn't clear or my answer was correct and his answer key was wrong. And he just, he was the football coach. He didn't really want to teach science. He just was like, stop arguing, just sit down and I will give you an A <laughs> at the end of the semester or end of the year. Um, 
you know, we were filling out our courses that we're taking next year and he's supposed to sign off on the recommendations. Uh, so I just put the standard science two and he looked at my paper and said, uh-uh, no, this is not gonna do. And he put honors next to it uh, for pre-AP and sent me into the honors class. And that, that really changed my life because the teacher that taught the honors class was also getting his master's from the local university, University of Irvine, uh, California, Irvine. Uh, getting his master's degree in, in biosciences. And in one of the lectures, he was teach, trying to teach us this ATP synthase. And the entire class just was a complete blank. He, he kept saying, well, you know, the, the ADP and the phosphate comes in and this thing turns around and it clamps down. And we're just like, what? How, how do these parts spin, turn? And so he went to the university, got these 3D reconstruction videos and the latest science videos and brought it into class and just showed us this nice 3D reconstruction model, just all the parts moving. I was like, whoa, biology is just super efficient, super small engineering. And that got me really excited um, and I fell in love with that. And so that... Um, that's how I got into sort of biology and bioengineering. You know, that might be the time. That's a great example of how negotiating with your teacher worked for you. It did not work so well <laughs> for me because when I was in undergrad, and I think the way things worked in India was that when in the exam, when there is a 15 mark question out of 100, you're expected to write paragraphs after paragraphs after paragraphs. And I was always this bullet points kind of guy. So I basically had everything within a few bullet points. I was done with the exam, came out. And then when the, when the evaluation kind of came back, the papers came back because we get answer sheets back with markings on it. I got much lower than everybody else. And I went to the, went to the teacher and asked him the same question. And he said, oh, but I expect a longer answer. I said, what answer do you expect? Uh, and he said, this, this, and that. And I said, well, it's all in there, isn't it? You just require so many bullets to answer those. You don't need a long paragraph of stories. Uh, and it's science. It's cell biology. I mean, it's, it's interesting that you have the similar example of that as well. But it did not end well for me. But I'm glad that it did, did well. Uh, you did well there, uh, TK. That's, that's an awesome story to share. Um, My science teachers but- actually, they actually drew straws to see who was going to be punished by having me in their class the next year. <laughs> But I think that type of a journey kind of would have shaped you into how you approach training um, younger scientists, or for that matter, I assume you probably teach at Pittsburgh as well. So tell us a bit about how that type of thinking and your experience in, in learning with a master's student who was going to UC Irvine kind of shaped your view of, of education yeah. and how you should be yeah. educating others. Well, let me, let me first take a step back then. Um, Cause I guess the, the, the reason why I was always interested in engineering was because I, I was a very active person, you know, physical activity, sports, basketball, volleyball, soccer. Um, and I did track, pole vault, gymnastics. Um, so, you know, my, one of my biggest fears, my, my biggest fear at the time was getting a spinal cord injury and, losing that part of my identity, my, my physical activity part. Um, the irony is that I spent so much time studying to be able to repair that, that I stopped doing any physical activity. <laughs> so, 
so in, in trying to preserve that physical activity identity, I, I lost it, um, which is ironic. But um, and, and, but even taking another step back, um, and so that that's sort of I come from both perspectives of understanding biology and engineering, and, and taking an even further step back, you know, I grew up in Irvine, which is predominantly Asian, and specifically a lot of, of, of Japanese. Um, so I grew up in that sort of culture where, um, and then the other part of that story is I, my parents put me in a, a very white, rich private school. They couldn't afford it, but they found a way to do it. So, you know, I was in this situation where I was growing up around a lot of Japanese folks and, and they didn't really consider me Japanese, um, not in the sense that they were. And I also grew up in, in this very white private school. Uh, and it was very clear that, you know, I didn't quite belong there. Um, but that also gave you a unique perspective on the dualities of culture. Um, and, and I think that sort of translates also into engineering and science, the dualities of research and development. Um, and so in, in my research program, that's one of the things that I try to highlight is, is trying to celebrate these differences and differences in perspectives, differences in problem solving, and sort of leverage that, utilize that, and take advantage of that to solving problems that, you know, have not been solvable. Yeah. So, and does that, how do you kind of talk about those aspects with problem solving and all of that with, with your, how do you combine that with your teaching? And do you use special type of experiences slash um, questions that you kind of pose to the students that's different from the way you were taught science? Yeah, so the students generally don't like it until until they love it. Um, but you know, I, I try to keep my opinions to myself until the very end. I want them to do the thinking and, and the talking. I don't because if I if I say, well, here's what I'm thinking, then all I ever get back is an echo chamber. They just spat out what what I said in a rearranged in a different way, because that's what they think that I want, and I don't want that. I don't want more of me. Because um, that's not valuable to me. I already know what I'm thinking. I, I need other people who have different perspectives that are thinking different things. Um, and so they, they always, you know, early students, young students all, will always look at me and they just, what the heck are you thinking? Just tell me what you want. I'm like, I want you to tell me what, what you're thinking. Uh, and then we can sort of meet in the middle. Um, and so that, that's, I guess, one aspect that I, I try to push um, and, and try to train. Um, and another one is sort of how we approach projects and papers. And so, well, you know, each student has to be responsible for their own project, right? That's, I mean, that's, that's sort of what a PhD uh, represents, ability to manage a project, plan a project, and execute a project. Um, but that doesn't mean you can't have help on the way. And so, for example, you know, the way that we plan out projects is first we develop a, an outline of the project. Um, before you even do the first experiment. Where, you know, what's the story you're trying to tell? What's the hypothesis you're trying to prove? How are you going to prove it? And, and develop a story that way. You know, answering question A is going to lead to question B. How are you going to test question B? And then that answer to question B is going to lead to the question C. Um, and then before, you know, the student and I will go back and forth a couple times, and once I think it's, it's ready, we'll do a lab meeting on it. Um, and, and instead of sort of rehashing old data, we'll say, well, here's a project that I'm planning to do in, in the next couple months. 
and here's a story that I'm trying to tell. What do you guys think about it? And do you guys see another question that uh, that you could add onto this? Is there a question that doesn't quite make sense or a better way to answer the question than what I've planned? Um, and it, I think it really leverages everybody's background and expertise. And so, you know, another thing is I don't try to recruit from the same research areas. So I have like a physics major, I have a computer science major, I have a bioengineer, material science major. Um, and again, they, they bring all sorts of not just life experiences, but technical experiences to a project. So, and you you often pitch your program at, at Pitt. So students who are looking at coming into your lab is that you're gonna leave here with two, two PhDs for the price of one. <laughs> so you're having a biology no, no, no. teacher, a biology student. <laughs> you get one PhD for the price of two. All right, we'll leave the economics out of it, but but back to that that duality of of science and engineering. You you don't seem to let your students get away with pigeonholing themselves into one or the other. I think you have a way of of forcing them to to cross over in in certain ways. Yeah, absolutely, and I think that's also valuable in terms of creating new space, and that's what we like to do in academia, right? We're trying to create new research to answer questions that no one else is answering. Um, and when you, you when you leverage that multidisciplinary training and perspective, you start being able to create your own research space, right? And that's that's what we hope our students can do. Yeah. So, which actually leads to a very interesting place we, to talk about, which is your graduate school career uh, with in the Kipke Lab at University of Michigan, uh, which. I must say, is a very, very prolific lab. And having known Daryl, uh, not having worked or collaborated with him, but I've just known Daryl from the area, I've interacted with him really closely for, uh, for a few times. Um, it is a fantastic place. Tell, tell us a bit more for the non-neural engineers. Tell us a bit about what does Daryl's lab at University of Michigan feel like? What does it feel like? Because everybody in the area of neural engineering knows about Daryl Kipke and the Michigan probes and everything else, right? Yeah. But in terms of just the experience, because one thing that Jojo and I have always seen is that the graduates of the Kipke lab are always outspoken and are never afraid to speak their mind. And I think I've known quite a few <laughs> uh, two of them. That's You're the third great. one on the podcast who actually worked uh, at, at Michigan uh, very closely or in Kipke's lab. Okay. Um, so how should I put this? Um, you can freedom. be as a... Un freedom. Good. It, yeah. So, yeah, it, I, I would. that's how I would label it. Freedom. Uh, freedom to do what you want. Freedom to pursue the questions that you want. Freedom to fail and fall flat on your face. Um, and I, you know, that builds a certain level of resilience, especially for those that who have made it out of that program. Yeah. <laughs> that's pretty interesting. Cause that's, I, I certainly don't have my PhD and I'm definitely not an engineer, but that, that is actually my parenting style. I mean, I raised my kids to, um, you know, it, it's a Bob Dylan lyric that is actually perfectly sums up our parenting style, which is if you're going to live outside the law, you got to be honest. So you can push the boundaries, go as far as you can go without going over the edge. And you're going to fall, you're going to fail, and you're going to learn from that. And you might get a little banged up on the way, but you learn from it. 
And I, I, I really appreciate that as a, as an approach to science too. So I want to, I want to go back to one thing you said about growing up in Irvine. Um, and you said that you were seen by the Japanese neighborhood as not being Japanese and by your schoolmates as maybe not being American enough. How has that shaped or, or what are the, the fallouts or outcomes from that experience? Yeah, you know, it's tough. I, I guess, again, you, you sort of learn resilience um, and, and you learn to carve out your own space. Um, yeah, I don't know what else to say about that. It's, it was tough. It was tough. But I, I think it, it has provided a gift in terms of how to look at science and engineering differently and not be limited by one or the other. Um, I hope our productivity and, and sort of our you know, scientific contributions show for that. And that's also what I look for in, in terms of uh, people I recruit into my lab. Yeah, let the work speak for itself, love that. So you're also involved in um, inequality stories in STEM. What is that about? Yeah, well, I should I should clarify that you know this is this is Don Taylor's big project, um, and I'm just here to help uh, get the word out. So, you know, the the idea here is well, I, the pandemic in particular. I think things were in motion before that, but the pandemic sort of put the the gas pedal down on it. Uh, is that we we're starting to uncover and, and pay more attention to the inequalities in STEM, or, or I, I need to say STEAM my wife will lecture me on that uh, art is an important part of of steam uh, but yeah you know it, it's it's highlighted a lot of inequalities here and I think we're just now starting to really listen um, and think about how to address some of these issues and so part of that is again listening we can't really solve the problems that exist if we don't really know what they are um, and this is a great place to contribute those stories. You know, Don Taylor has experienced all sorts of, of challenges being one of the first women in neural engineering. Um, and so I think she, she is the perfect person to, to sort of pull all these stories together and sort of present in sort of a data-driven way where the field is so that we can better understand where the field needs to go. Yeah, and I think the website is inequality stories in stem.org um, but I want to kind of come back to your definition of stem uh, no, no it's not stem it's steam because one of our uh, earlier podcast guests uh, and um, a good friend of mine Kit Parker from Harvard um, always advocates for arts in in science uh, because he believes that art is an important place where students can actually practice their, their um, improvisation skills and practice and working out that in an abstract way before they can actually go and do a science experiment. And I think, uh, and I think your wife is a, is a fantastic example. And I think, and I think she, she's in very, very good company with Kit on that front. Um, so and the website actually has some, uh, some really um, kind of true reflections and some some amazing, but at the same time, some gut wrenching stories about how 
um, inequality exists in in STEM, uh, much more in terms of real life experiences. Uh, some of them have been solved, some of them have been confronted, but most of them have not been. And it kind of goes to show how some of the experiences kind of shape our our values and how we act. Um, which brings us to a very interesting topic, which Jojo has kind of told us uh, that that you have a very strong feelings on, which is how inequalities actually happen uh, in in your in your life as as a practicing academic, as a, if I, if I can say that, uh, in terms of grant reviews and publication journal reviews, etc. I think it'll be amazing for the listeners to actually hear your stories there, TK, about how there has been kind of explicit biases or examples, et cetera, which, which has kind of led you to believe that this is something that needs to be confronted. And you've been a very big spokesperson for that. Yeah, I, I don't know where to start. <laughs> so many places go for it go, go for it this is your platform in, in the past where we've talked about it in, in especially in the publication review process um changing the makeup of the editorial review boards or the the review panels is important um and and um i know that's hard because those are volunteer positions but we need a more um a more accurate reflection of the people contributing the work that are reviewing the work, both in terms of professional experience and um, social ethnic makeup as well. Yeah, I mean, this is something that we discussed in the last uh, 2018 Gordon Conference, and, and you know, uh, people who are very loud, uh, vocal advocates for this were people like Kristen Welly and Joe Pancrazio. Um, so, so certainly, you know, it's, it is not just my perspective, but I think a lot of people are beginning to agree they. Uh, you know, Joe Pancrazio, Kristen Welly, and a few others at the Gordon Conference wrote a letter to uh, a number of the editorial boards of journals like Neural, Journal of Neural Engineering to, to make these changes. And I, th I think Journal of Neural Engineering, you know, it still has a long way to go, but has made some significant progress in trying to recruit uh, reviewers from a more even pool of ethnic backgrounds, location, um, technical backgrounds, um, it's, it's work in progress, but I think we're starting to see some of the fruits of, of those efforts. I think one thing that, um, that challenges people to step up and say something publicly or semi-publicly is a fear of retribution. And so I think specifically that you address JNE and now you are, you want to tell us about the special, um, uh, special edition, the special, what's Yeah, um, the, yeah, the special special issue for the Journal of Neural Engineering that we've Thank been putting together. I mean, we've had some fantastic submissions uh, and papers that have been accepted through this. Uh, we put this together with j &E because of the Gordon Conference um, in, in their response uh, to our crit criticisms in 2018 and uh, the 2020 Gordon Conference was canceled and, and JNE generously offered to host this special issue so that we can continue the conversation even with the conference canceled. Um, so yeah, it, the submissions will be open until the end of February. So if, if you have papers to contribute, uh, please check the website. 
And and so the the Gordon conference, the 2020 neural interfaces, I know that was the first um, victim of of COVID in terms of live conferences. And is it is it entirely canceled, or are you and and Thomas Stieglitz are you guys rebooting that for another year? Yeah. So uh, fortunately for us, a lot of the sponsors decided to uh, maintain their support from 2020 and, and apply it towards the 2022 conference. And so we will be having the Gordon Conference, assuming you know we're paying attention to the vaccine rollout and making sure everything will be safe. But uh, if everything goes well, we will be hosting the 2022 conference uh, in Ventura, California from March 13th through March 18th. So please save the date. That's great. I'm glad to hear it's, it's going to happen. I, I was double booked for the 2019 version, so now I get a redo. Um, one of the one of the other things I'm going to circle back one more time back to um, some of the stories on um, inequality stories in STEM um, and and your wife's influence in that is um, you've told me before one of the most horrendous stories I have ever heard and I just wanted to ask you to to recount it a little bit because I think um, a lot of people we've certainly come very far in a very short period of time, we have a lot further to go, but I think a lot of people don't believe that these kind of stories exist. So if you wouldn't mind sharing the the story of, of one of your wife's interviews, I, I think it's important yeah. to know that it still happens. Yeah, so this was not too long ago. Um, I, I just started my tenure track position. It was about a year after I started my tenure track position at Pitt. Uh, my wife was starting to apply for a PhD program um, and she identified this lab uh, they both, yeah, she identified this lab and they were uh, both interested in the same sort of research topics. And so she, she was really focused on uh, getting into this lab. And so they asked her to do an interview. They asked her to come back and, and do a scientific presentation uh, for this graduate program. Uh, and then a couple weeks later, the PI reached out to her and asked if I would come in and meet with him. And I was like, that's kind of weird. I don't want to do that. Um, but my wife was really, uh, really loved the work that Slab was going to do. Uh, so she asked me and so I, I went in and she kept, he, you know, he, he asked her some additional questions, which I thought were fine, kind, kind of starting to push the limits. And then he just randomly looked over at me and said, well, you know, your wife is going to start this PhD program, but you're a tenure track faculty. And I don't know if you guys are planning on starting a family, but, you know, you're, as an assistant professor, that's a lot of time and stress. Is she going to have time to contribute to the lab? I'm like, can't ask me that. <laughs> that's illegal. <laughs> it's not just illegal to ask her that. You can't ask me that. But, you know, I, I just gave him the honest answer, which was, you know, I, I have three R ones. Like, I'm set. Uh, so, you know, I, I don't see any issue here but as soon as we walked out at the door you know the first thing I, I turned to is like I love you but getting a PhD it's it's more important to have the right mentor than it is to do the right research you can always do the research you want to do as a postdoc or as an assistant professor but you need to have the right mentor yeah um and and yeah that that was a shock well, that there is nothing short of shameful in that. I mean, honestly, I mean, it's just it's just atrocious, for lack of a better word. Uh, so thanks for sharing that, uh, TK, because I think I think that wasn't too long ago, right? That was like probably 
maybe two two and a half years ago possibly four, yeah four years three four, four, four years, years ago. ago yeah yeah it, it still um, goes to show that there are certain certain things that that possibly are still the way they are and people need to actively take that um, head on and confront it and uh, potentially make a decision based on that and yeah it's I, I think I think this is again another example of how a certain type of experience kind of shapes people's views uh, both positively and negatively uh, depending on which way things go um, and I think yeah it's 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 just downright atrocious even after hearing it a second time it leaves me speechless which is really really hard to do i think people wish they could do it more often but i'm i'm not that compliant so did your where where did your wife end up yeah she she is doing her phd in another lab right now um actually doing uh, research on pregnancy related health issues which is something that she was interested in postpartum actually specifically um which has been a deep interest to her so that that's been working out that's so awesome it's nice that you have somebody who who's at your um scientific and academic level that you can have you know post office talk and and you guys probably have a lot of pretty interesting dinner conversations i think that's that's awesome that you can share that passion for research yeah and uh, i was actually told by jojo that you do advocate for a very strict sleep and exercise regimen for for people in your lab. What's what's that got to do with anything about productivity in science, TK? Yeah, uh, you know, <laughs> part of this is my wife's doing. Um, you know, I've, I've been telling her that once I get tenure, I'll, I'll start getting back in shape and start working out. Because uh, I just, I just got to keep the lab going, uh, keep the students going. And you know, last week she bought a spin bike and put it right in front of my couch chair. <laughs> so that's always looking at me. Um, but you know, I, well doing, doing neural engineering and, and neuroscience. I can is, feel is the guilt a, even when you just look know, at it and know, talk about it. Right now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's, there's a lot of neuroscience behind it, right? Um, you know, we're doing, we're particularly interested in sort of the brain interface in terms of vascular injury and, and uh, neurovascular coupling. Um, and a lot of research now is showing that you, you need sleep. The, the lymphatic pathway activates during REM sleep that helps clear your brain and re- rejuvenate your brain. Uh, without it, you know, you're not gonna, you're not gonna be able to think optimally. You're not gonna be able to identify when opportunities are in front of you, both scientifically and professionally. Um, and so sleep, you know, eight hours of sleep is, is really important. We actually have a lab contract, which outlines four or five rules that I have. Um, and, and that's one of them is making sure that you, you get enough sleep. And, you know, the other one is related to that is exercise. Right? You need to, your, your heart needs to be at a functional condition for you to be able to get enough blood to your brain and think about all of the scientific stuff that, that you need to think about in terms of generating new projects, identifying uh, solutions to, to challenges, uh, and designing experiments. So. so you said four or five items, clauses on the contract. The first is sleep, get enough sleep. And the second is exercise. What are the other three? Do you want to tell us what the other three are? Uh, yeah, I, I, I kind of <laughs> get up to remember. You know, one is, again, we have a lot of cultural backgrounds. So, you know, for 
whether it's fair or not, the language of science is English. And so one of my rules is don't speak another language in a work environment, in a research environment, because you have to learn how to communicate in English, whether it's writing or whether it's a conference, um, in order to be able to promote your science and communicate your science. Uh, so that's another rule. Um, yeah, another rule is, uh, you know, the sort of 20 or 40 hours a week, if you're, if you're still taking classes, it's 20 hours a week of work that you owe the taxpayers, which are funding your position, and 20 hours a week of learning academics. Um, when you transition to full-time dissertation mode, then that's 40 hours, and that includes uh, going to seminars and learning uh, through non-class means or, or reading journal papers. Um, so I, I think that's basically it. That's, that's good, because I do know when I did my graduate school at Ohio State, there was this one biochemistry professor where one of my classmates of mine did his rotations, where he was actually asked to come into the lab at six in the morning and leave whenever he left. So for an entire summer, mind you, this was my very first semester. And I arrived at Ohio State with a bunch of other kids, uh, international students um, in summer, June 2002. And this particular classmate of mine in the summer in the Midwest did not see sunrise except or did not see sun or daylight except for the time that he was walking into the lab um, for an entire summer. And uh, he made the mistake uh, going back to your kind of thing about uh, about uh, contracts and the importance of sleep and exercise. Uh, he joined the lab because he loved the science, but it just burned him out. Like he just quit after six months of working in the lab. And uh, he then finished his PhD with a, with a different advisor. Uh, but that was six months of his life that he never got back and probably a life lesson that she'll probably learned after maybe a couple of weeks in the, in the, during the rotation. But yeah, therein lies some very important life lessons um, for that. But yeah, I mean, I think, I think it speaks to how balanced, well-balanced you actually see the, um, the outlook that students should actually have uh, as much as what any athlete should have if you're playing sleep and exercise are as important. And if you're, if you're playing with your mind, which is what most PhD students do, that is as important to them as well, because it enables recovery. I I have a horrible boss. She is just, I mean, absolutely awful. And, and she, I don't, I don't think she'd ever subscribe to the, the sleep and exercise um, regimen. So if you could have a word with her about that, I appreciate it. Well, you know, I do, I do also tell them, you know, this is, right, this is your career, this is your job. Um, and I don't know if you guys have heard, like, the, the tenure rule or the, the um, 10,000 hour rule. It's not really a rule, it's more of a guideline, but you know, it, it, takes, it takes a very long time to build the structures in your brain and strengthen the connections in your brain to become a professional. Um, you know, the, the, 10, the 20 hour, 40 hours it is a rule. Um, but you know, you also have to think about it in terms of compound interest, um, which is something that uh, Warren Buffett also promotes, right? And so I tell them, this is what you owe me. Everything else is it's for you. This is everything else after 40 hours is you investing in your compound interest. 
the more time you put in earlier, the more time you will have later and still be making money, right? Making knowledge, making contributions. Um, and so I do, I do tell them that. I guess the fifth rule uh, would have been that, or is that you know, your first semester, you need to spend maybe half the time developing your social network. Because like you said, you know, people are coming usually from very different places, first time out of their home state or home country, um, and you know, are thrown into this very new environment and, and you need that social support because you're not gonna survive without it. I mean, it's hard, PhD is hard, right? Doing it, 100 million people, 100 billion people have, have walked this planet and at least 5,000 years of written records. I mean, if it was easy, someone else would have discovered it, which means that you're gonna have a lot of failures and a lot of other people are gonna have a lot of failures. And, and there are really hard times in a PhD and it helps to be able to commiserate with the peers that are going through the same thing at the same time as you are. Um, so I, that's, that's another thing that I try to encourage the first semester. And on that note, TK, where is the Kozai lab going uh, with its future research? Can you, can you tell the audience about what the themes are and what you're focusing on? Yeah. Um, so we have a couple of different directions that we're going that are all very exciting to me. Um, so we, we started off by trying to understand you know, what the heck, what the heck is, is the brain recording when you stick an electrode in? You know, I remember in the Kiki lab, we would have electrodes and sometimes we would record neurons, sometimes we wouldn't, sometimes we would record these really weird signatures. Uh, and we, we kept saying, well, what is this? What are we seeing? What's happening inside this black box that we call the brain? Um, and that's sort of where we you know, started incorporating things like two photons so that we can actually see what's happening while we're recording them. Um, and that has opened up a whole new set of questions. And so things that we're looking at now relate to what's happening in the brain during neur neural degeneration, like multiple sclerosis or Alzheimer's. Um, we're starting to dip into things like uh, mitochondrial diseases and lysosome storage diseases. How do these impact specific cells? How do they impact the neural network? work. Um, on the other side, we're still continuing on with trying to understand what's happening on, on recording electrodes when we record a signal. What is it that we're recording? What are the signals in the brain that we're not recording with an electrode? The loss and translation components. Um, and the other thing, the last thing that we've started getting into that's very exciting to me is looking at how electrical stimulation modulates specific subtypes of neurons as well as non-neuronal cells. So like uh, microglia, astrocytes, oligodendrocytes, all these other cell types have uh, voltage-gated ion channels. They obviously don't generate action potentials, but these, the activation of these voltage-gated ion channels regulate different activities in these cells, which then in turn regulate how neurons process information. Um, and so trying to understand how that happens in disease and injury, as well as trying to now manipulate that and, and perhaps do some glial modulation to improve neural network activity and brain activity. Yeah, and I think that makes me extremely happy to hear that because all of my graduate work and postdoctoral work was all about uncovering the electrical abnormalities in the heart when the whole world was actually saying that it's all about electrical abnormalities and, and wavelengths and reentrant circuits and everything that produces cardiac arrhythmias. I think we were one of the first groups at the time to actually say that 
every electrical problem starts off as an as an oxidative problem and that oxidative problem basically becomes a redox imbalance at a local level that triggers electrical imbalances that leads to chronic arrhythmia so um yeah that's that's and then that's spawned on a whole host of kind of other investigators kind of leading oxidation reduction reactions imbalances to fibroblast and inflammation leading to kind of cardiac pathologies etc and electric abnormalities and i'm glad that you're actually focusing on that and we will definitely look forward to results from your lab tk i think that's a very very important area given how important those other non neuronal cells are uh, both to electrical properties as well as how the brain reacts to neural interfaces right because we all know right. what happens when a silicon probe is inserted into the brain uh, not all of us know <laughs> Well, maybe the, this is a time for TK to explain that, right? So what happens when silicon probes get inserted and why are studying non-neuronal cells important, TK? Oh, where to start? I mean, yeah, they, they activate, um, you know, the, the scar tissue process, they damage the, the pipelines that provide nutrients and oxygen to the brain. They also disrupt the waste clearing uh, pathways. And so it just creates a, a whole slew of messes um, and, and one of the things that I think early on in this field, people were focused on was suppressing glial activity and, and the hopes that it would suppress scar tissue formation and improve neural activity. And what we're seeing is that that's not always true. Um, you, you actually want certain types of glial activity or glial activation in order to promote healing. Um, and, and in fact, that that's necessary. And if you don't do that, you actually propagate the damage and injury and, and uh, kill off a larger portion of the brain. Um, so these are, yeah, it's, you know, a lot of questions in this area, a lot of questions that remain, which is really exciting every morning to get up and, and, and think about this and think about how we're going to tackle sort of decoupling all these issues or, and treating these issues. It's, it's a fantastic time to be doing research. Well, and I'm, I'm so glad you're doing it because it's, it's, clearly exciting to you. And, and I'll just be the benefactor down the road when there's some clinical translation of this work. And um, on your, your mitochondria research, I want you, I want to encourage you to reach out to Erica Ross at Abbott because she's a huge fan of the mitochondria. She's even organized. Yeah, we've talked a, a couple times. A mitochondria 5k. I mean, it's her favorite organelle. <laughs> so um, with that, I want to say thank you for coming on. Thank you for sharing your experiences and, and maybe helping us make some headway in, in a lot of different areas in research and how we treat each other and how we teach and how we learn. So thanks for coming on, TK. Oh, thank you for inviting me. The clips are officially owned and is a property of Scraps, a brand jointly owned by Arun Sridhar and Jojo Blatt. No reproduction of content should be undertaken without the permission. Sainthan Chandran was the editor and our soundtrack was by Acetad. And we'll be back soon with another installment of Scraps, which is just Sparks, spelled backwards. It really is that simple to remember. Yeah, 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 yeah.